Matt Keeley. I'm Phil Grayeski. And you're listening to The World in a Grain of Sand, where we take a deep dive into biotech S1 filing, talk about what's cool, what's unusual, and what we can learn to better construct and support our own portfolio. So today, we're going to be looking at Kodiak Biosciences. This was a company that went public in October of 2020 after a brief hold when they tried to go out in March of 2020. And everybody knows that that was a challenging time for the market. They ended up raising 85 million bucks, which gave them a market cap of 600 million. But more, more interestingly, I think let's let's actually dive into what Kodiak Biosciences does. So, Phil, you know, I, we've both gone through this. I, one of the takeaways for me is they really wanted to communicate that they are harnessing the power of exosomes to treat previously untreatable diseases. Can you help me? What is an exosome, and and how are they actually achieving this? Yeah, so as one of my good friends would say, they're just building some fancy mayonnaise. <laughs> An exosome, effectively, it's it's a lipid bilayer uh, that's like a bleb off of a cell that naturally has different receptors from the cell it's produced from and grafted onto that lipid bilayer. And that allows it to target certain cell types, load particular cargo, uh, especially if it's from an engineering basis. Uh, and so it, it's, it's basically this non-viral vector that might help improve our biodistribution and targeting potential with a novel technology. And, and Phil, real quick, is this a is this a well-known delivery modality? Is this a novel delivery modality? Like, how would you fit this in on the spectrum of, of kind of well-validated modalities, if you will? Yeah, I would say at, at this time, yep. exosomes, they are just being understood, right? There has not been an FDA-approved product that is an exosome delivery vehicle. So this was quite novel that Kodiak was pursuing this. Uh, the one thing that's important to note is we discovered exosomes naturally in the human body. We knew that these little vesicles were like a, a communication pathway for cell-to-cell -cell communication and had a good predominance in the central nervous system to communicate between different neuronal cells. And so it was something that we knew could potentially be leveraged for delivery. Mm -hmm. And that was with the major discovery here that Kodiak was trying to tap into. And then why do they make the claim or how do they make the claim that they can treat previously untreatable diseases? Yeah. So what they're ba basically doing at Kodiak, and they classify this in the S1 is, and when they talk about their competition, is that there are either some companies that are pursuing unmodified exosome strategies, which what that means is they're basically just isolating exosomes from cell culture, uh, from natural cells and, and packaging those and delivering them. And they're going to hope there's certain biomolecules inherently in those that could be effective. What hope, right? Just to say that out loud. Yeah, I, the, the likelihood that a natural uh, pool of exosomes would be therapeutically useful, I think that that is pretty low. Like I, the data from, I would need to see a pretty high bar of yeah. data to, to get comfortable there. But Kodiak, they're doing an engineered exosome strategy. So what they're effectively doing is they're actually tailoring and putting novel recombinant proteins either as the receptors itself or a protein to load the exosome. And they actually highlight those. So, for example, there's two proteins that they were working with in their platform. One was a long acronym PTGFRN. This was a protein that they naturally found in exosomes, and they were using that to fuse proteins to its N-terminal domain. And this thing would be on the outside, exposed to the outside of an exosome to help mm -hmm. delivery. And then the other protein was a protein called BASP1. This is a protein that they could 
fuse things to its internal domain to load stuff into the lumen of the exosome. So the lumen is the inside of an exosome. If you thought of an exosome as like a small little ball, it would be what's inside that ball versus what's on the outside, which is in the case of the PTGFRN protein. Uh, and so Kodiak's basically playing with these two proteins, attaching different things to them, expressing them at a higher level in cell types to hopefully produce more of that protein to decorate the surface in greater propensity. And so that's effectively why they are in an engineered exosome mm-hmm. company. Yep. But just to say that back to you, because it is interesting, you know, I think a lot of companies that talk about engineering anything, right, whether it be a capsid, whether it be mammalian cells, they generally focus on at least more than two proteins. Is that right, Phil? I mean, I, you know, I, everyone's different. I'm, I'm not suggesting maybe these are the two most relevant proteins here for purposes of, of tropism. That's right, right, Phil, that it's just two proteins that they're modulating? I, I totally agree. I think it's an interesting strategy given to today what we now have with some of the new technologies that exist. You're, you are seeing much more broad, encompassing platforms that can search the protein targeting space to find a whole host of other receptors you might want to put onto these mm-hmm. exosome surfaces. Kodiak was really, from the S1, at least from what they're communicating to us, is they're really taking a bet on two proteins. Now, I will give them credit in that these proteins are preferentially found in exosomes. So they were just trying to take advantage of the natural system, but to not have more shots on goal for a company that's as robust from a financing perspective as they were as a platform company, it was a little bit surprising that they were just so focused on these two. Yeah. And I think that's what they would say. They're just focused. So thank you, Phil. That's fantastic. I think, I think folks now at least have a feel for Kodiak does. So it's helpful to think of like what's the most successful version of Kodiak and then what's a, a less successful version. So when we were talking, Phil, I think we thought Kodiak in this S1 would want to convey that this is a natural, safe, meaning no to limited off-target tissue effects, highly potent, novel delivery modality that just as they said, they can treat previously inaccessible or undruggable targets that has been validated with two large pharma contracts, right? I, I mean, Phil, is there anything else that you think they would want to want to propose if we're painting the, the sunniest picture of Kodiak? No, I, I think that they felt that they were entering a new strategy for delivery yep. that had a good biological basis and they could unlock a whole new vertical. And it is now just up to them to show, give the burden of proof to investors that, Mm -hmm. look, we can actually do what we're claiming, which unfortunately, as we'll get into later, the data package just really wasn't there to support. Yeah. So, you know, a more bearish view, we're not suggesting take it all the way here, but this is an underfunded, unproven platform with no near-term clinical assets, whose I think degree of engineering is much more narrow than many other platforms. And again, I, I would just harp on it's probably underfunded, Phil. And we'll get to this. I think we're you're going to hear us talk about the fact that it's underfunded more so today than ever because this is a company that the IPO was relatively small, $80 million, and whose burn rate is pretty high at $80 million. Right, Phil? I don't... I think that's pretty novel. Yeah, I... So... The only thing I'd push back on there is I don't know if it was underfunded. I think it was overfunded. Yeah. And they just 
and I think it was a poor financial management yeah. uh, in, in many ways, right? To have that type, have a burn rate with the data package that they were able to present in this S1, like we have seed stage companies that have more compelling data packages that have only been financed on the order of tens of millions versus the hundreds of millions that they raised to get to this point. Yep. And so that to me, it's, if you're looking at it just from the perspective of what they did from an IPO, yes, that's underfunded. Yeah. But if you look at the company history. No, that's a, I, yeah. I think that's a great point that it's not necessarily that this company is underfunded by only having an 80, $85 million raise. It, it's that the burn that they essentially have accepted and got comfortable with. And like, that's the running financing that this company needs is very high. And, and so we'll get to that in just a second. But Phil, before we get there, you know, we've talked a little bit about how this is a, a novel delivery modality. Where would you put Exosome on the delivery roadmap or the delivery landscape, if you will? Yeah. And I think we talked a little bit about this, even in the, the podcast that we did about Sana Bio. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, in the world of delivery right now, I, I think there's probably three main delivery modalities. You have AAV vectors, which are commonly used in gene therapy. It's a, it's a viral capsid, adeno-associated viruses. They have FDA-approved products in that category. They can be delivered IV, and they, they typically are able to alter their tropism to target things pr- quite effectively like the muscle, the liver, the eye, the central nervous system. But the p- challenge there is it's a one-time dose yep. is because it's a viral protein and immune response builds to it and then prevents it from being redosed. So you, ha- so you have one shot to get it right. The other verticals now are, are much more focused on non-viral delivery methods, ones that you could potentially redose. And exosomes, sometimes called extracellular vesicles, EVs, which those terms can be used interchangeably in many ways, those as a delivery modality, they can be redosed. The challenge with exosomes and EVs largely has been clearance. These particles are actually quite big. A lot of AV capsids can fit into them. They're, they're actually of a decent size. And so and clearance of them can be quite fast uh, because things like macrophages, other immune cells naturally just take them up and clear them out. And so from a biodistribution perspective, you are somewhat limited if you go th- through an IV modality, which is why what I, you know, when we talk about the pipeline, Kodiak, the routes of administration that they are, they're testing are quite limited from their pipeline. But the other vertical, the last one would be LNPs. This one also Yeah, so has, we have LMPs, AAVs, and EVs. Is correct. That, got it. And so LMPs, this one actually also, like AV, has FDA-approved products. That's like a Moderna vaccine is an LMP-based vehicle. And LMPs are just, they're also lipid bilayer, somewhat similar to exosomes and, and EVs, but they don't have all the decorations yep. that you can of these proteins. They're another form of fancy mayonnaise. And these LNPs, their issue is when you go deliver them IV, right, you can make them a little bit smaller. They, they tend to not have as high of clearance as I would say, exosomes or EVs from what you've seen about data today, but they typically just get soaked up by the liver. The liver just naturally absorbs yeah. a lot of them because they're lipids. And so really the focus around LMPs has been, can we get that away from the liver? So I used this analogy before, but it's really what Kodiak was trying to do is, at least from the broad claims they were making, is provide a new delivery vertical that would alter really the biodistribution. So think like the zip codes of where exosomes and EVs could get. So beyond just macrophage uptake uh, and and start targeting other tissue types. And so that would be kind of the zip code. And then the cell type you might want to go is like, are you knocking on the right door? So can you add like targeting ligands that might be more effective at getting to one cell type versus the other? Like I could see that's where Kodiak would want to be building this as an overall vertical. Mm. But 
I don't think they ever really got there. And when we talk about the pipeline, you'll see that their delivery, the root of administration, you'll see it's much more limited than what I think the broad encompassing language they were using to talk about exosomes and EVs were in the initial S1. Yeah, no, that's great. So Phil, that's great. I think it's always helpful to at least get you know a little more context on how this company came together. How was it formed? Uh, where did the IP come from? Who was there at the beginning? And in this instance, I think I think it's interesting, even if not too too different than a, a number of the other companies we've looked at, right? So first, this was born out of a collaboration with Arch and MD Anderson, right? And uh, specifically MD Anderson, Arch, and Douglas Williams, who used to run Biogen's R&D, got together around 2015, started this company with a license from MD Anderson of the underlying kind of exosome platform, if you will. And then at the same time, Flagship was looking at this and Flagship was was looking at cellular therapies, but if you're going to look at cellular therapies and you're looking at the broader landscape, you would understandably come across exosomes. Prior to 2015, when when this company was formed, had created a, an entity, had put some IP that Flagship had developed. And then, you know, at some point in 2013, 2014, it must have met up with Bob Nelson and Arch and they decided to combine these entities, funded it with $31 million. Shortly thereafter, funded it together with another 61. And then in 2017, Fidelity came in and led with participation from Flagship and Arch, a $77 million financing. So all of this is to say, it's been very well funded. To quantify that a little bit, since it was founded in 2015, running right up until summer of 2020, they ran through almost $250 million, Phil. Yeah. And so I guess one of my immediate questions is if we think about where what that generated, and we can take this both, Phil, into a pipeline and a data perspective, what did we get out of it? I feel like not much, and I feel bad saying that, but because when you look at the pipeline of what Kodiak did, what they were really... And again, Phil, I think it's two programs, it, yeah, right? It was, it's two lead programs that they basically got through preclinical studies and ready to go into the clinic for $200 million something dollars. Yeah, 200 and almost $50 million. And in both those programs, they are adopting a similar strategy. They're delivering some immunotherapy that's well-established. So in one case, they're delivering a, a molecule called Sting, which Sting is this cyclic dinucleic acid that naturally it looks almost probably viral in origin to the immune cells, and it stimulates a robust immune response. The problem is you, you need to find a way to deliver it locally and safely because if you deliver it systemically, it causes toxicity. Similarly, they were also having a platform where they were delivering IL-12. And in IL-12's case, this is something that has a strong immunotherapy response that where makes the immune system start targeting cancer to kill it, but the problem is, is if you deliver that systemically, which is just through an IV administration or, or throughout the body, you cause pretty significant toxicity as well. And so they're, they're taking two agents that have shown to be really good in preclinical models, and they're just trying to find a way to deliver it a little bit safer, and they're doing that through an exosome. Mm -hmm. And so their lead program was exosting. So in this case, they're using the BASP1 protein, the one that targets the lumen, to load this sting agonist into the inside of an exosome. And they're basically, it's called the exosting product. They're direct, they're injecting that directly into tumors through an intratumoral tumoral injection. And the problem with that as a delivery modality is you basically have to find a Venn diagram of patients where 
they have tumors that you can inject, but not tumors that you can operate on to remove the tumor. So that Venn diagram of patients where that seems like a likely modality is it's quite narrow. And thus, even though they're bundling a bunch of different cancers together for this clinical study, they only really have 90,000 patients total in the U.S. that they could address with this. The other program, ExoIL-12, they're taking the IL-12 molecule and they're fusing it effectively to the other protein, PTGFRN. And that one is the one that's on the surface here. And they're hoping that, and they're actually delivering this sub-Q into the tumor. It's another intratumoral injection Mm -hmm. to treat clinical population of, I think it's cutaneous, T-cell lymphoma. And that's a small patient population. I think they have like 12,000 patients is what they quoted in the S1. And they're hoping that IL-12 will get presented to the immune cells in that tumor and thus target those immune cells to kill a cancer. And so those were their two lead programs. But if you think about the roots of administration, that direct injection method, it really doesn't speak to the, the overall platform strategy of what Kodiak could eventually unlock as a delivery modality is that really like you know, we haven't been able to show that we can deliver this IV. It can go through the body. It targets tumors naturally. It's getting to the right immune cells. You really are just actually locally administering yeah. this thing at its specific site. And from a clinical standpoint, it's not really something, given some of those restrictions that I've already mentioned, viable for the vast majority of patients. Uh, and so that's why their third program, which wasn't their lead but was mentioned quite a bit in the deck, was I think their, their most interesting which was the exo-ASO STAT-6 program. So this one, they're delivering uh, an antisense oligonucleotide. It's an inhibitory molecule to knock down a gene called STAT-6 in macrophages. And this would convert macrophages from an anti-inflammatory type to an inflammatory one to help kill the tumors. And what was unique about this one is they said when they go into clinical study with this program, this was going to be through an IV administration. So it's like, okay, that's interesting, right? Like now I'm going to have a much more common root of administration used in cancer therapy. And that, I'm going to target- It actually takes advantage of the properties of an exosome. Exactly. Right, Phil? Yeah, because macrophages naturally clear exosomes. So this one was the most exciting. But the problem that I've, I feel like I ran into with the S1 is when you look at the data, the only data they showed with this particular pipeline program was they did that all intratumorally as well. So nothing, what they've built here shows, I think, a more interesting root of administration that I think you kind of require from the level of funding that the, this company had had right. achieved. And right. Just, if yeah. exosomes are able to avoid and evade the immune system, why are we delivering it locally? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, it's, well, you're not trying to you're not trying to evade the immune system in this case, but like if they're able to get to the, those immune cells, the right immune cells appropriately, and yep. not uh, and, and get to their site of target action, why go through such a non-usable method to deliver this therapy um, yeah, yeah, yeah. from a clinical standpoint. No, it, it, and, and we see this a lot, right? We, we, we see a company describe the capabilities of its platform one way, but then the data is generated on, on essentially like a different delivery modality or a, in a way that doesn't take advantage of the features offered of the platform. Yeah. Right, Phil? I mean, I, I think that's a fair description of what's going on here. No, and from a data perspective, I will give Cody a credit. The preclinical data that they did share within this S1 was generally interesting outside of the concerns around root of administration and things like that. Like they were using good cell lines that are aggressive in mouse models and trying to treat them with their therapy through intratumoral injections. And they were showing 
tumor shrinkage in mice. And then they took that into NHP studies and showed that these modalities were safe, mm-hmm. fulfilling that promise of the platform. Yep. And they basically did it for both studies. And so largely the data was generally compelling, but for the amount of capital that it's, it's, it's such a function of the amount of capital that they yeah. raised for this company that it was just like, you'd expect them to have gotten so much farther with 200 million something in financing. Yeah. So taking one step back, we've discussed what Kodiak wanted to communicate here. What another, I think, message from the company to prospective investors is we have two strategic priorities, one of which we've talked about, right? That's develop exosomes that are engineered to deliver a broad set of biologically active drugs. The other, though we haven't spent time on, which is something we've spent a lot of time on at KDT, which is how do you manufacture these exosomes reproducibly and at a scale to fit pharmaceutical standards, right? Or to satisfy pharmaceutical standards. Why, why are they talking about manufacturing here, Phil? Yeah, so the manufacturing piece of exosomes is critically important because, as you recall, these are formed as like blebs of a membrane effectively coming off of a cell. And this becomes a very heterogeneous product. It's, it's much different than if you compare it to some of the other delivery modalities we talked about, like LNP, a lipid nanoparticle, or an AAV capsid, where you have much more control of the characterization of this. Mm-hmm. So like an AAV capsid, it's, it's a virus. It's a well-defined protein capsid that you are leveraging. Whereas an exosome, there's a generally like quite a bit of heterogeneity in the product because you're just pooling all these different blebs that come off the proteins. They're all of different sizes. They have different compositions and levels of what receptors are on there, what's actually even being co-packaged with them. Yep. So like there's, there's a host of other proteins inside the lumen of an exosome beyond just the one that they're using BASP1. Um, those are just the ones that should be more preferential mm-hmm. in an exosome. So you don't really know what is coming from this mixture that's being delivered. Yeah. And so manufacturing becomes critically important because you need to, especially with a group like the FDA, you need to show consistent manufacturing standards and characterization of what is going to be your drug product going into a human. Yep. And with exosomes, that's inherently challenging because there's going to be a size distribution, a charge distribution, composition distribution. And so it's somewhat unique about Kodiak is this is opportunistic in some ways, right? Not only do I own the drug product, I also own inherently the manufacturing. Yeah, it's a hedge. That could be quite interesting from a technical moat perspective, but the challenge is it becomes much more expensive because now I have to optimize all of these manufacturing methods and technologies in order to create a a well-characterized drug product. Right. And that may be where a lot of the capital went. Yeah, no, and and so just to say that differently, right? So a lot of pharmaceutical companies don't invest in their manufacturing capabilities. Now, look, some of them don't need it, right? Maybe it's just a a small molecule that can be synthesized easily by some CRO. But, you know, as Phil said, these these present manufacturing problems because they are heterogeneous. And as a result, they have invested heavily in their manufacturing capabilities. And the reason I called that a hedge is— you know, there was a world where exosomes are the next big modality, that the programs that are spun off this platform are unsuccessful, but nonetheless, Kodiak is the manufacturing platform for this burgeoning new modality. Yeah, like that's exactly the business model that Oxford Biomedica has now taken, right? They have become really a manufacturing partner for lentiviral vectors used in ex vivo therapies, yep. like CAR-T. And, and they actually have licensed 
products to current FDA-approved CAR-T therapies. And so if Kodiak, you know, what's frustrating about Kodiak is we can kind of play too much of Monday morning quarterback here, seen from when it IPO to what the date is today. But in 2021, they sold their whole manufacturing operation off to Lanza for 60 million bucks. And so that sale kind of killed their ability to pivot to do a Oxford Biomedica-like strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's worth mentioning that's a meaningful build. And what I mean by that is, recall, Tasha didn't even have an office. There are companies along the spectrum that have invested in infrastructure and some that have not. I think, you know, different investors and different groups have different thoughts on should you be investing in infrastructure? Is that something you wait for? You do it with debt or you do it with those growth rounds? I think it's worth noting that they invested heavily in manufacturing. And as Phil said, they ended up selling that off, which it's hard to know if that was a good decision or a bad decision, but it, it did certainly kind of limit the ability things that that Kodiak was able to do. And so we've we've danced around this, but we haven't we haven't talked about it specifically. They spent a lot of money. So specifically, they were burning $80 million a year, right, Phil? They 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 burnt $80 million in 2019. In the first six months of 2020, they were right on track to burn another 80. And at the time of IPO, they had $50 million in cash. 15 of that was pulled down from a line of credit. So they still had 50, but you know, it was, it was closer to 35 in equity. And they only raised 85 million. I mean, they raised a year of, of runway, which even in venture is, is short. When you just think about it, it was a year and a half of runway in equity dollars. And they had already partnered, right? So they had the Jazz Partnership, the Sarepta Partnership, which I think what we can talk about in a second. And they were going into clinic. Yeah. And so like, are you going to get your readouts in a year and a half if everything goes right going into clinic, especially during covid Right. We have no idea. It was frustrating because how do you find patients? It's like I said, the, the Venn diagram again. You were going to try to recruit patients during COVID where they have an inoperable tumor or they're not trying to remove out the tumor, mm-hmm. but they're going to inject into the tumor. You're going to try to find a patient who has that mm-hmm. situation in COVID. To me, I just don't see how you do that and get that done in a year and a half and have data to then get access to more. Raise more. Get, yeah. yeah, get access to more capital that is meaningful. And so thus they had to make really hard decisions like sell off manufacturing to Lanza to continue their viability to let this clinical trial data try to trickle in. And that that just seems flawed from the start. Yeah, and we won't belabor the point here, but it's worth noting in many spots across the S1, Kodiak simply states, we anticipate that our expenses will increase significantly in connection with our ongoing activities. So I think we're doing them a favor saying that they had an 80 million burn rate, raising 80, give it a year. It's just to tee this up for you, Mac, like, so they were from the partnership perspective, right? Like they had a bet that they were going to get another partnership, but their current partnerships, I think you should go through and talk about a little bit. Yeah. So they largely had two kind of out licenses, two partnerships with the, with the prospect of an out license. And, and they're very, very different. Neither better than the other necessarily, but, but very different. And so the first one, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, right? This was inked in January of 2019. This, I think, is a pretty typical biobuck deal, and it, it gets really squirrely. If, for folks that like negotiating partnerships agreements, I really suggest you you look at the details here. It's it's a little bit outside of the scope of the partnership, or excuse me, of this podcast. But when it got into certain veto rights and Jazz's ability or Kodiak's ability to essentially assume certain costs for greater upside. A lot of 
time was spent negotiating the details, but at a high level, it's pretty simple. So Jazz Pharmaceuticals paid $56 million up front, up to $20 million in preclinical milestones, up to $200 million in per-product milestones, and then tiered royalties between the teens and high single digits in exchange for Kodiak doing all preclinical work, so including through IND, and is responsible for portions of the expenses incurred in connection with a phase one and phase two study, those expenses are Kodiaks. So all R&D expenses with bringing these five oncogenic targets that Jazz identified, that's all on Kodiak. So that 50 million up front, you know, I think that's a, excuse me, 56, that's a big number, that's exciting. When you think about all of the expenses that are going to be incurred in connection with bringing five targets through IND, and then you still need, you're responsible for a portion of the expenses for the phase one and phase two, all of a sudden that 56 million isn't so rich. Yeah, especially in a company that's proved they're capitally inefficient. Yeah. So anyway, it was, it, it's a good deal. I, we're not here to belittle this deal, but it, it is interesting. You know, I think one of the things folks don't appreciate as much as they should is when these big agreement, these big partnerships are announced, who's paying for R&D? Because I, that's a, you know, if there's a big upfront and the larger partners paying for R&D, there's probably a margin there. When there's no corresponding obligation on the larger party to pay for portions of R&D, I think it's fair to wonder what's the margin on that upfront. And that takes us to the Sarepta deal. So the Sarepta deal was um, entered into about 18 months after the Jazz Pharmaceutical deals and uh, the Jazz Pharmaceutical deal, and it looks very, very different. And I say that because, so this is a $7 million up front with a $3 million prepayment. So $10 million came into Kodiak up front. But unlike Jazz, Sarepta is responsible for all R&D spend in prosecuting five neuro targets that Sarepta identified that, of course, Kodiak was going to use its novel exosome-engineered platform to try to hit and deliver a therapeutic payload. So I bring this up because on one hand, I, I almost like that deal better, Phil. I mean, I could argue both sides here, but at least there's 10 million, you know, 7 million coming up front. And I know that all of my R&D expenses are covered. At least it's not such a budgeting nightmare, right? Yeah. No, I, I hear you there. I guess it'd be interesting to go into the minds of what the Kodiak execs needed. Yeah. Right? Because I wonder if they needed more upfront just to unlock cash to be able to continue the business mm-hmm. as is, whereas Sarepta just wasn't going to give that. And I wonder how much of this, in this deal structuring, did it come down to these companies doing like a financial audit yeah. on this organization and seeing that burn rate? Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. Let's say Sarepta likes the data that's being generated on any of the five neuro targets. In order to exercise the option on that program, Sarepta only had to pay $12.5 million, yeah. um, which is you know relatively light. So anyway, those when we talked about the bull case, you know, these are two real deals. I think the jazz pharmaceutical numbers are, are much bigger, but of course we talked about why those might be a little deceiving. But Phil, let's 
take it back one one I think topic that came up here that I wanted to touch on because it, it relates and I think companies in our portfolio think about it a lot is what's the spend between platform and asset? And I think unlike a lot of companies we've looked at, Kodiak tried to retrospectively assign expenses to the platform and to each of its programs in a way that I don't know how illuminating it is. And I, you know, we'll obviously look for to get your opinion on this, but they looked back. They said, look, we spent 120 million on R&D since January 1, 2018. 18 of that is on the Sting program. Seven of that is on the IL-12 program. We've invested 30 in the platform and the balance, 65 million on other, right? People and and they in-licensed uh, uh, some assets for, for about $8 million. Phil, to me, I was surprised that they've spent about as much on the two programs combined as they have on the platform. Did you have any similar reactions or any reactions when you kind of saw that? Yeah, I think ultimately the pressure on this company was to deliver more than what the limitations of those two programs would be as as an intratumoral injection opportunity. That, that and I think that I think the financing actually speaks to why I think you and I give more credence of they were shooting for something bigger here. Yeah. And then what they effectively reported. And I also think it might speak a little bit to the confidence they had of some of those clinical programs uh, and, yeah. and and their breakdown of spend. And so they they knew they had to keep following up with stuff that would be more credible. I think the company was set up in the classic the height of venture <laughs> days, right? 2020 and prior where they were betting on a boatload of more capital coming in through future partnerships. Um, and and so that's why I think they were like, oh, we can, we'll be able to continue to finance this thing with what we're able to effectuate from the BD side. Yeah. I think it's just a data point, but I, I can't tell you how many times we've had conversations with companies in the portfolio where pitching, whether it be the A, the B, or the C, and I think a common question is, of this raise, whatever it is, 30 million, 50 million, what portion is going to be allocated to the programs and what portion is going back to the platform? I think it's interesting that, at, you know, Kodiak, at least, you know, up to the IPO, spent more on the platform than it did on its two programs combined. So, Phil, you know, I, I think we're about at the end. Is there anything else you, should, you want to touch on before we let folks go? Yeah, I, I kind of want to circle back to the partnering thing in two instances real quick. One of them with Kodiak is with the Sarepta deal and the Jazz deal, something I always think about is, can you control your own destiny? Mm-hmm. And, and in both of these scenarios, the company f- had different considerations. In the case of Jazz, they're completely in control of their own destiny because they're going to be able to take that program up through phase two, show human clinical efficacy. At that point, let's say something falls through with Jazz, which I, I don't know what the legal obligations might be or not, but they're going to be able to show human data that drives continued value inflection for the company. But in the case of Sarepta, Sarepta, yeah, they gave him 10 million bucks, but Sarepta has no onus to ever work with anything coming off the platform. And so even though they get this deal, they advertise it as a big BioBucks-related deal on the press, if you actually reduce it down, like, are they really in control of their own destiny with a group like Sarepta and that structuring? No, and I think they'd say no, but I, you know, and, and just to play devil's advocate, I think they'd say, look, we're not really looking at neuro targets. Yeah. 
right? Like yeah. we, these are sleeves off our vest. Yeah. So that's what I think. And so I, I don't think that there was, um, I just think it's sometimes an important consideration when companies are, are trying to build these partnerships and they're heavily partnering their pipeline to just not give up everything and make sure that yep. you are in control of your own destiny. So there's pros and cons to both of those deals. I think the only other thing that was worth noting about Kodiak and the reason why I continue to think, you know, they, this was a, a very expensive organization running at a very high burn rate. I think they were banking on the vaccine platform that they also highlighted in the S1. Yeah. I thought they, I think they were pretty confident they would be get, getting some partnership yeah. with someone to do something for COVID. And that I don't think ever came through. No. Because that would be a direct injection site. They would hopefully be able to target antigen presenting cells or immune cells, present some RNA based vaccine. Good point. Um, and I bet they were hoping that would continue to help keep the the sh- the the circus running. No, I think so too. I mean, and, and there had to be something. Everybody here at this company is wildly sophisticated. They get it. I'm with you, Phil. There there must have been. They must have thought they had a credible opportunity to raise other forms of cash. Otherwise, they wouldn't have financed this the way they did. Yeah, they would have raised more, or they would have stopped burn. I yeah. think it's that simple. Phil, thank you so much. Thank Uh, you, Mac. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks to all our listeners, and we'll catch you soon. 